we're going to jump into this, uh, the Good Confession, this series in First Timothy. Before we do, just an administrative word. Uh, you may have noticed we have a new um, bulletin. Is that what you call them around here? Bulletins, right? We, in Southern California, we were sophisticated. We call them resource folders. Uh, but these are bulletins, right? Worship guides, whatever you want to call them. And uh, they're, they're, new de- they're newly designed for a couple of reasons so that we could, um, we could try to streamline things and include some other aspects uh, like what passage we're in, the series we're in. Um, but we do know, the reason I'm mentioning this is I know that for some of you, uh, and we have a lot of note takers in our church, which I'm grateful for. Some of you took notes on the back of the old bulletins. And so we, we're aware that we've sort of taken your uh, note-taking space. What we have done, though, is we've ordered some uh, new little notebooks that will be in, I think, next week that uh, you can pick up. They have ca- Capshaw logo on them. They're like $3, so you can continue your, your note-taking uh, in those. But I appreciate uh, Pastor Adam and those and Josh Barnes, others who have gone to uh, sort of redesign this, uh, this bulletin. So uh, the Good Confession, the, the name of this series comes from, as you heard, uh, the the expert readers read. It comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, which is where Paul commends Timothy for making the good confession in front of many witnesses. And that is, of course, following the example of our Lord Jesus, who himself made the good confession in light of Pontius Pilate. So uh, that's what we're continuing to do our second week in Timothy. Let's pray and we'll get into the text together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have found us by your grace. And we thank you, Lord, that you have sought us and pursued us, that you have come after us and overwhelmed us with your love, your mercy, your kindness. You have made us aware of your holiness and your glory, and you brought us to repentant faith. And Father, we praise you for that. We thank you for your word and its power, that it's living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And Lord, we ask this morning... As we read it and explain it, you would pierce our hearts by it. We ask this in the name of our living Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, it's after almost 25 years of marriage. It'll be 25 years for us in April, April of 2019. Janine and I have reached this stage in our wonderful stage of our marriage where we're able to do something we hadn't been able to do for 15 years, and that is we can go out, just the two of us, kind of uh, on a whim, uh, without any sort of uh, previous planning. Some of you are still in this stage, and I know because we were there for a decade and a half, where if you want to go out with just your wife uh, or your husband, you have to plan and get a babysitter and, and work at all the logistics and so on. Where We're finally at a place where if we want to go out and, and do something spontaneous, we can do that. Now, we love being with our kids. Uh, our kids are four, four of my favorite people to be around. But there is something, uh, there's something sweet about being able, again, to go out uh, whenever we want. And sometimes we'll go out and we'll, we'll see a movie or we'll go shopping or have dinner or whatever it is. And, and uh, now, again, we're at this point where we can just leave and uh, we can say, hey, there's a, there's a box of Hot Pockets in the freezer and uh, some Doritos in the cupboard. So don't call us, we'll call you. And uh, we're able to get out and enjoy each other. But one of the things that we like to do before we get out is we want to make sure that there's, there's no, hopefully, there's no unresolved conflict among our kids. So we go through just a quick laundry list of things to, uh, to solidify who's in charge while we're gone, where the food is, what, what TV shows are permissible, who's the king of the remote, and all those things to make sure that hopefully that there's no, there's no conflict that uh, blossoms in our absence. Well, 
Paul, when he planted this church at Ephesus, as we saw last week, ideally, he left Timothy there. He was hoping that things would kind of simmer down. Uh, but as we've seen, the conflict would continue. And uh, Paul urges Timothy to remain at Ephesus and deal with some of these issues. Um, after the apostle Paul planted this church in Ephesus, he left his young friend Timothy, who was probably about 30 years old at the time. We don't know for sure. Um, but he first met uh, Timothy, Paul did, uh, when he was probably a late teenager, 19 or 20. And then they traveled together, planting churches. And now Paul leaves Timothy in the city of Ephesus to oversee this church. And things weren't perfect when Paul left, but they would only get worse after his departure. As we discussed last week, one of the problems was, one of the main problems was, false teachers had infiltrated the church, and they were, they were dwelling on myths and genealogies and all these things. But what they had also done is they were, they were misusing biblical law. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to cover verses 8 through 11. We're going to have to wade a little deeply this morning. But it, uh, I assure you, it is entirely relevant to where we are. 1 Timothy chapter 1, let me read all four verses. The text reads this way. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So again, Paul leaves his, his young protege, Timothy, who's become his, really his son in the faith, he says. He leaves him to deal with the church at Ephesus, and then he writes this letter. In, in the section this morning, right away we see something. Paul implies something very important. He implies that the law can be used unlawfully. In other words, the law can be used, this is kind of a play on words, the law can be used improperly. Biblical law can be used improperly. The law itself is good, but it's very bad when the law is abused. Now, when we read about the law in the Bible, so you're reading the Old Testament, the New Testament, there are hundreds, hundreds of references to the law in the scriptures. And when you read about the law in the Bible, particularly the New Testament, it's typically a reference to one of uh, three things. Uh, most of the time, it's a reference to the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. So this was the law that uh, Moses received from God on Mount Sinai, contained in what we know as the first five books of the, the uh, Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And there were roughly uh, 734 of these laws, give or take a few. And those laws included the, the 10 words, the 10 commandments of God, inscribed by the very finger of God. So when you read about the law in the New Testament, and we're going to see it a lot in, in 1 Timothy, uh, it's most of the time a reference to the Mosaic law, the law of Moses contained in the first five books of the Bible. Now, a second way that the law is spoken of in the New Testament is in reference to the entire Hebrew scriptures. So sometimes, when Paul writes, and when the, God, when the writers of the Bible, uh, when they pen their words, they're talking about, by law, they're talking about the whole Old Testament Bible, the Hebrew scriptures. For example, there's a situation in John chapter 7 where uh, Jesus delivers his living water sermon. Probably remember this. 
And when he delivers this sermon, there's a huge controversy. The crowd is, is sort of whipped into a frenzy. And the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, are really bothered by this. And they say, in response to the crowd, well, the crowd, they don't even know the law. And what they're talking about there is they don't even know the Hebrew scriptures. They're making reference to the entire Old Testament. So sometimes it's used in that way. And the third way that the law, the word law is used in the New Testament is in reference to all the commands in scripture. So sometimes when uh, the writer of scriptures talks about the law, this is a, it's more of a, a broad sort of a catch-all category that is, is in reference to all the commands. So all the commands are kind of lumped into this category of law. Again, it's a catch-all phrase to describe anything in the scripture that, is, that appears as a command, a demand, uh, an exhortation, an expectation. And you, can, you know those words because you know when it's law because words are, you see words like should, must, shall, ought to, and so on. Those are sort of dead giveaways. We're talking about the law, this category of the law. The law says you must do or, or you must not do. 20th century Dutch theologian Louis Burkhoff explained it this way. He said, the law comprises everything in Scripture, which is a revelation of God's will in the form of command or prohibition. So you thinking about reading the, the New Testament and some of the, the passages you've read, you can remember, I'm sure, some of the, the, some of the laws, right? Love God, love your neighbor. That's, that's a command. That's an imperative. Uh, run from lust. Flee youthful lusts, right? Uh, deal truthfully with one another. These are all commands. Be kind to one another. Do not use profane or unwholesome talk. Help the weak. Do not murmur or complain. These are all commands. These fit in the category of law. Now, of course, we could go on and on and and I'm sure you could come up with some other imperatives that you've read, other, uh, other laws in the Bible. These make up what we call the moral law of God. And Paul says, the problem is not the commands of God. So the problem is not the law. The law is good. It's right. It's beautiful. It's perfect. It's all of those things. The problem is not the law. The problem is how the law is used or, in the situation at Ephesus, misused. The false teachers in this church plant at Ephesus were apparently teaching a law-based works righteousness. In other words, what they're saying is that if you really want to be right with God, if you want to be reconciled to God so that God would receive you, you have to keep all the laws. And of course, they were piling on other laws even to the scriptures. They were saying you have to keep the law rather than believe on Jesus Christ and what he's done. So one uh, New Testament commentator, Brian Chappell, says this about those folks at Ephesus. They were abusing the law by making it out to be a means of righteousness. These men were sitting around with a small group of self-righteous believers, weaving endless teachings into an imagined ladder to high spirituality. They were saying, if you just do this, okay, if you just do this, whatever it was, if you just do this, then you can be right with God. Now here's, this morning we're going to look at the bad, the good, and the beautiful. And here's the bad. Here's the way that the law is abused. It's the way we see it done here and also today. The most devastating misuse of the law is to teach or believe that by our efforts to keep it, we earn God's salvation. 
This is, the, this is the worst way that we can use the biblical law. This is a misuse. This is an abuse of biblical law to communicate, to believe, to conclude, to assume that by our efforts to keep the law, we then earn God's favor or God's approval. It was the most destructive abuse of the law 2,000 years ago. And I have to tell you, I'm persuaded that it's the same way in the church today. In fact, I believe that this is the way most people think about Christianity. If I can just do more good than bad, if I can just really keep my life clean, then surely God will receive me. He'll accept me. And I talk to people all the time. When I ask people, either casual conversation or counseling situation, uh, on what basis do you, do you believe you'll be received by God? Why do you think God would accept you? I hear this all the time, all the time. I've tried to live for God. I've treated people fairly. I've tried to serve God. And the reality is when we believe that, we're misusing, we're abusing biblical law. And actually what we're doing is we're becoming our own functional saviors. Now, we may say, we may confess Jesus as Lord, but what we're really trusting in is our obedience, our performance, our baptism, our church attendance, our giving, whatever it is. We then become our own functional saviors, believing that if we can just do enough, of course, it's never enough, is it? If I could just do one more thing, if I could just do enough, then surely God would accept me. Now, we see this approach in the religious people of Jesus' day, the Pharisees. They not only kept the law, but they added all kinds of extra laws. They had, they had, they had laws upon laws and, and interpretations of laws, and they thought because they kept all the laws and they were really good people, that God would be pleased with them. What does Jesus say? He actually has some of his the most harsh, really the worst language you'll read by Jesus in the New Testament is directed toward the religious people. He calls them sons of the devil. He calls them whitewashed tombs. In other words, yeah, maybe you're all clean on the outside, but your inside is rotted. We see it in, in the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and I think we see it in our own lives as well. I know I see it in my own heart. I want to believe that I can do enough. If I just obey God and I just keep the rules to the best of my ability, then something will prompt God to accept me then. There's something in our own fallen nature which makes us want to get to God by our own efforts. The way we, this way we stay in control. We kind of hold on to the reins. We don't relinquish our control. And the problem though is that we really can't keep the law. We are morally incapable of keeping the law in its entirety. And the Bible says if we, if we offend God, if we, if we violate just one law, we're actually guilty of violating all of it. So Paul says in, in another book, he says, those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under a curse. For the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. So it's clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. So you have these false teachers. They've come into the church at Ephesus. Paul's gone. He's left Timothy. Timothy's a young man. He's 30 years old. Probably he's, he's fairly timid by nature. We're going to find out later. And then these, these false teachers are coming in and they are saying, if you just keep the law, if you do all these things that we say you should do, then you'll be right with God. So that's the abuse of the law. Well, what then is the law for? Look at the last part of verse 9 and verse 10. 
um, or actually beginning of verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, the sinners, the unf- and he goes, and, and all these things, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, what does Paul mean when he says the law is not laid down for the just? Well, this is, this is hard stuff, and, and, and there are a lot of different interpretations on this. So, whenever I approach the scriptures, I'm praying, I'm reading, I'm studying, I'm working with languages, all those things. But I also want to confess, I, I don't, I mean, there are plenty of wise, godly people who differ on things like this. But let me tell you where, where I come down on this. Um, when Paul says that the law is not for the just, but for the lawless, and then he allowed, then when he does so, he then elaborates by giving what's known as a vice list, a vice list. This is a list of all of these sinful behaviors and activities. And here's the deal with Paul's vice list. Okay, he includes this in a variety of his, letter, of his letters. It's in Romans chapter 1, uh, 1 Corinthians. We see a vice list in Galatians chapter 5. And whenever we see one of these vice lists, it is in reference to those who are outside of Christ. The vice list is in reference to, and typically a vice list will include something like, don't you know that these people who practice, practice this will not inherit the kingdom of God? So Paul uses these vice lists in several of his letters to refer to those who are outside of Christ. So here's what I believe is going on in this passage. The false teachers were saying that keeping the law is the way to ascend up the spiritual ladder, right? To get to God. They were, this is the way to get God's approval. And Paul says, no, the law is not for the just, it's for the unjust. In other words, those who are in Christ aren't saved by the law. The law is for those who are outside of Christ so that their shortcomings are exposed by God's perfect standard, which is the law, and they then are led to repentance. Here's the second, our second point, and this is the good of the law. The ultimate purpose of the law is it serves as a mirror revealing clearly our imperfections and driving us to Jesus. So this is the beauty of the law. It shows us how much we need a Savior. That's what makes the law so beautiful. It shows us how much we need a rescuer, a redeemer. We look at the law and it reveals our imperfections. We're in a pretty good, Janine and I are in a pretty good rhythm now in our lives where usually on Fridays I'll spend a couple of hours trying to wrap up my thoughts and my notes and uh, and then try to send those over to Josh if I can by that time. And then we'll usually go, uh, go out to lunch and then we'll do shopping. Somehow we always end up at Target for a little while, uh, which I despise, but we're at Target for a little while. And then, and every once in a while we'll, we'll go to the mall. And so, you know, we, we would go to the same mall all the time in Southern California, park in the same spot. And, and in order to go, to go into the mall, you had to go through a department store and you had to go through the cosmetic section. So, you know, I always found myself as I'm going through the cosmetic section, I always found myself, and I know better, but drawn to these high-powered mirrors. You ever seen these? You know, you get up close and they just reveal every imperfection. And so, you know, look at those things. And I try as quickly as I can to move. One day I'd made it successfully past the high-powered mirrors. We got out into the mall area and this guy who was working at a, uh, I don't know, like a lotion or cosmetic store, he said, hey, well, you guys, they're very, very persuasive. Come in, come in, come in. Sit down. I want to show you something. We tried to avoid him. We couldn't. So we go in and we sit and Janine sits down 
And he just goes on, oh, your skin is radiant. Your eyes are bright and beautiful. Your skin is so beautiful. There's no way you can be the age you say you are. So she does it. And then I sit down. And then he just looks at me. And he said, you've had a hard life, haven't you? I, I, this guy, he, he said to me, what happened to you? <laughs> and so he goes on, you know, t- t- tells me all the different things that I need. Well, I was so depressed when I went out of there. I'm thinking, this, this is terrible. I mean, well... The, the, the mirror that he held up to my face was an instrument of pain to me. It really was. And this is the way the law functions. The law reflects the perfect righteousness of God. And in so doing, it then reveals our shortcomings. So we see what's perfect. The law is what's perfect. And when we hold up ourselves to the law, we see our imperfections. We see how needy we truly are. For example, when we read... That Jesus commands us to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and your mind. We realize that our love for God is insufficient, isn't it? We don't love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love other things better than God a lot of times. We love our children, our careers, our house, our money, our cars. We read that, we say, yeah, I failed. I failed. When we read that anyone who hates someone else in his or her heart has committed murder against that person, we see the depravity of our own hearts. When we read that we're to put away all bitterness, all wrath, all anger, all striving, all malice, we see, yeah, I haven't done that. I have not done that. When we read that God commands us to speak only truthfully with one another, our hearts sink because we know the number of times that we exaggerate and embellish in order to make ourselves look better. The law shows us that even our best efforts will never be enough to save ourselves. In his commentary on Galatians, Martin Luther said this about the law. The law shows sinners their sin so that by the recognition of sin, they may be humbled, frightened, and worn down, and so may long for grace. Simply put, the law brings us low so that God may raise us up in repentance and faith. I had a friend tell me recently how impressed he was with his wife's uh, spiritual progress. And he said, I'm really, I'm so glad my wife is just growing by leaps and bounds. And I, and I said, oh, I mean, what, what have you seen? And he goes, well, she, she reads her Bible more every day. She, she prays more every day. She's at church earlier. She never misses a Bible study. And and I said, that's, I mean, that's amazing. That's awesome. Praise God for that. That's a really beautiful thing. However, you know, you can do all of those things. You can pray more. You can read your Bible more. You can come to church more. And it may not be an indication of true spiritual growth. He said, well, what do, you, what do you mean by that? He said, well, I said, if you want to know how you're growing spiritually, don't look first at all the nice things you do or don't do. Don't look first at all the ways you've helped other people out and all the times you come to church. Don't look at the ministries you've served in. Don't look at your baptism, whatever it is. I said, look first at whether or not you've been crushed by the burden of your own sin and you run consistently and persistently to Jesus for forgiveness. You want to know if you're growing or not? You want to know if you're growing in your faith? Look at whether or not you're trusting Jesus more today than you did yesterday in light of, in recognition of your own sinfulness. So I think, I think you want to know how maturity manifests itself 
in humility, in brokenness, in a deeper faith in Jesus Christ. Someone has said, I think it was J.D. Greer who wrote uh, in his book, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart, a sort of a theology of salvation. He said, true Christianity, true uh, salvation is a posture of repentance and faith that begins in a moment and continues through a lifetime. Repentance and faith, brokenness, joy in the forgiveness that we find in Jesus Christ. And the only way we're going to be repentant over our sins is if we see with clarity all the ways that we've rebelled against God. And that's what the law shows us, the ways we have rebelled against God. And not, it does so not to destroy us, but again, to cause us to run to Christ. In fact, Paul says this in Galatians chapter 3, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that's the old King James Version, but it's so good. The law is our schoolmaster. It brings us to Christ because it shows us all the ways that we have failed to meet God's standard. Now there are other uses of the law, and I'll give you just a quick uh, three-minute uh, explanation. Uh, Reformational Christians have long taught that there are three uses of the law. The first one is the mirror that I've been talking about, the, the, the spiritual use, so to speak. Uh, the second one is called the civil use, which is the restraint of evil. Uh, th these are things like stoplights and uh, stop signs and, and things like that, uh, driving restrictions, property protection, all those things. That's the so-called civil use. The third use of the law, which is sometimes called the didactic use, is to show us what's pleasing to God. So remember, when, when God gives us instructions, when God gives us commands, it's not to keep us down. He's not doing so to squelch us or to, to, to rob our joy. He's showing us the best way to live. He's showing us the, the way to live that leads to joy because we, by obeying God, we spare ourselves of the consequences of sin. God gives us instructions not to stifle us. He does so so that we can thrive. His, his ways are better than our ways. His blueprint is always better, whether it's marriage, relationships, sex, pleasure, health, whatever it is. God instructs us how to live in a way that is for our good and his glory. And in that sense, the law is our guide. That's the third sense. The law is our guide. Michael Horton explains it this way. Now written, on, now written on our heart and not merely on our conscience, the law is cherished by believers. They long to keep it, not as a way to, of attaining life, but as a way of living the life they have been given by grace alone. The law directs our steps in the way of faith-filled gratitude. So the law is good. The, the law, the commands, the imperatives, the expectations, the exhortations, those are good. But here's the thing, and this is so important. This is why, where it becomes intensely relevant. The law is good, but it has limitations. The law has limitations, by which I mean. The law tells us what to do, but it never gives us the desire to do those things. It's kind of like the law is the train tracks on which the train sits, but the train only moves if something else propels it. And that something else is grace, gospel. The law is good, but it has its limitation. This is why Paul says what he does in the last part of verse 10 and 11. He says, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. 
The word sound for sound doctrine is a, is a terrific Greek word. It's eugeinein, which uh, sounds kind of weird, but it means healthy. It means life-giving. That's all it means. It means healthy. Sound means healthy, life-giving. And what's, what Paul is saying here is that the law, or that while the law tells us what to do, it cannot give us the life to do it. All sound doctrine is in accordance with or in light of the gospel, which means all life-giving teaching at any level must be gospel-centered, which showcases the glory of God. Here's our third and final point. The law diagnoses the problem, but it cannot fix what is broken. Transformation depends on something else, and that's gospel. The law tells us what to do, but it doesn't give us the desire to do it. I mean, think about the prophets in the Old Testament. Think about, have you ever, I was reading just the other day, and I was cringing at some of the pronouncements of judgment that God gives to his people, especially numbers, some of the, the 20s, chapters in the 20s, right? God says, if you keep doing this, I'm going to cause animals to come and eat your carcass. You're going to die. All these terrible things are going to happen. God says, if you disobey me, this is what's going to happen. If you disobey me is what? Law, right? But what happens? It never works. It never works. God says, if you continue to do these, these things, I'm going to cause all these dreadful things to plague you. And what happens? They just keep doing the things. They just keep on and on. How are they ever drawn back to God? It's only by his mercy, isn't it? It's only by his mercy. This is what the book of Hosea is about. By his mercy. It would be nice to think that just telling somebody to do something would actually give them the desire to do it. Now, for how many of you does this work with your children? You tell them to do something, they say, you know what? I'm so glad for those instructions. I've wanted to do that. I just haven't known what to do. It doesn't work like that, does it? No. If I tell my kids to do something, they immediately don't want to do it. This is the way that it works. This is what happens with law. Janine and I were, and I hate to bring this up because it'll make my kids sad. We used to have a dog uh, not long ago, and we were taking our dog for a walk. We had this same sort of track that uh, we would take. And we were walking by this one house. It was a brand new, new house that we had our, our neighborhood. And then just the neighborhood over was these huge, huge houses. And we were walking in this neighborhood, which is brand new construction, new, new uh, manicured lawn. And there was a sign out on the lawn that said in big, bold letters with a picture of a dog, no dumping, no dumping. So the, the thing was, you know, they, they're like, this is our new lawn. We don't want you bringing your dog over here to dump on it, Right. You go right there by that sign and there's just, there's feces everywhere. People just take their dogs over there and they just dump over there. And so what we discovered, what we saw, which was so fascinating, and this is a, this is a beautiful law gospel paradigm here. It was no dumping, no dumping, no dumping. And then one day we're walking our dog and there's a sign there that says, provided for your convenience, the no dumping song is, the sign is gone, provided for your convenience. And there are little, can I say it, poop bags, little bags there. The place is totally spotless. There's no feces there at all. And what happened was they went from law to grace. They went from do not, do not, do not to, you know, we're providing this for you. That's the difference. And that's the way it works. You think about it in our own life. Have you ever heard of anybody loving someone else because they were told to? Bonnie Raitt, who's a, a great blues a country singer, says, has a song that says, I can't make you love me if you don't. 
I can't make your heart feel something it won't. You can't, by law, the law tells us what to do, but it does not give us the desire to do it. In fact, not only that, I'm going to go one step further here. Sometimes the law actually provokes the opposite reaction that it is intended to incite. Apostle Paul says this in Romans 7, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Paul said, if I wasn't told not to covet, I probably would have never coveted. But now that I've been told not to covet, all I want to do is covet. Now, the problem, again, is not the law. The law is good. It's beautiful. It's right. It's perfect. The problem is sin. The problem is our unglorified hearts, which make us want to do the opposite of what we're told to do. Now, again, here's where this becomes very, very practical. Let me make it first practical to the church. If the church gets a steady diet of law, if I'm up here every week, and I'm not going to do this to you, I promise, but if every week I get up here and I just blast you on how you're living and not living, and I just hammer you with law, 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 no good news, no grace, no gospel, what will happen to the churches? It will become either filled with people who will become guilty, depressed, hopeless, despondent, and give up. They're not going to come back anymore. Or it will become filled with people who are so puffed up with self-righteousness because they're looking around at everybody else and saying, why doesn't he keep the law the way I keep the law? Why doesn't she do what I, what I do? I, she should be a better mother like I am. So then we become either, we have either despondent and depressed or we become absolutely self-righteous. The same thing happens. The same thing happens in our parenting, in our marriages, in our friendships, in our relationships. If, for example, all our kids get from us are expectations, demands, rules, guidelines, quote-unquote challenges, they will either go off the deep end and rebel because they realize they, they just can't do it, or they will become cute, little, nicely dressed Pharisees. Beautifully obedient on the outside, but riddled with pride and self-righteousness on the inside. If our spouse gets from us, all, all he or she gets from us is expectations, which again, is just law, demands, expectations. We'll get a perfunctory response, perhaps, but without desire, without love, without initiative, if anybody we're in relationship with is inclined to believe that our love for them is conditional, it is based on their ability to do what we think they should do, our relationships will grow cold, they will grow loveless, and they will grow joyless. But if our relationships are characterized by unconditional love, sacrificial giving on our parts, Unconditional love can change a wayward kid. Unconditional love can restore a broken marriage. Unconditional love can grab the heart of an unloving husband. Unconditional love can turn a lawbreaker into a person who is joyfully obedient. Now, now there's a place for law. Of course there's a place for law. We have rules in our house. And I'm sure you have rules. This is not saying, you, you okay, throw out all the rules. 
I'm not saying that there's a place for law. But what I am saying is we always have to realize the limitations of the law. And that is law will not change a heart. Only grace will. Only gospel will. Paul corrects these Ephesian heretics because they're presenting the law as something that we can keep and thereby earn God's approval. And it's not helping the church. It's harming the church. Paul says in the same letter, these men have swerved from the faith. They're leading other people astray. Their insistence on abusing the law was destroying the church. So instead, Paul says to Timothy, correct these men. Bring them back to a correct use of the law. Not as an instrument that saves or transforms, but as the unflinching standard that brings us to our knees, crying out to deliverance to Jesus. People must not be told, if you do these works, you will be saved. Instead, they must be assured that God has done everything necessary for their salvation in Jesus Christ because his love for them, and they're called to believe. Now, I'm going to give you two very quick stories to illustrate this. Uh, several years ago, there was a man who was leading a ministry in the church that I pastored, and, and I kept getting these bad reports from this, this man and his ministry. And I heard that people under his leadership, they were becoming depressed and they were becoming hopeless and despondent and angry and some were leaving the church. So I said, well, okay, I got to figure out what's going on here, right? So um, I would, had really worked hard over eight years to develop kind of a team teaching model where I was in the pulpit 36, 38 weeks a year, but other gifted preachers and teachers were also preaching. And so one morning I had another guy preach and I sat in and, I, and this guy's ministry that I'd heard all these things about. And he taught from 1 John uh, chapter 2, or yeah, chapter 2, and you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it quickly. He taught from 1 John chapter 2, and 1 John chapter 2 says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And I sat and I listened to this man teach for 45 minutes. And the whole thing was on how we shouldn't sin, and some of you are sinning. You need to clean up your lives. Why are you sinning? Why aren't you doing what? And only at the end, for like 30 seconds, did he talk about Jesus Christ, the advocate, the propitiation for our sin. It was law, 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 devoid of gospel, devoid of grace, and the people under his leadership were wilting. Now, let me give you another example from the sports world. Some of you, uh, I grew up watching the Bengals, and then when I was a CNN, I covered the Cincinnati Bengals, so I've always been a Bengals fan. And uh, there was a, back in 2014, there was a linebacker by the name of Devin Still. He was a linebacker for the Bengals. He was a late round, late uh, pick for the Bengals. And he had all the physical tools, but they couldn't get the guy to work. He just wouldn't work. He was lazy. And so they tried everything. They tried setting up uh, different boundaries. They, they tried uh, threatening him. They tried getting in his face in front of the other team. You've got to perform. What are you doing? You've got to perform. He just wouldn't perform. He just wouldn't work. So they cut him. As soon as they cut him, he discovered that his little girl Leah had cancer. And he was cut. He was off the team because he, he, under, he was underperforming. He was lazy. He wouldn't work hard. Well, the owner of the Bengals brought this guy back, Devin Still back, because he needed insurance for his daughter's cancer. Brought him back and said, we're going to put you on the practice squad. You know, you, we've already cut you. We're not doing it because you deserve it. We're doing it because we want to show love to you. Something incredible happened to Devin Still. He started working harder than he'd ever worked before. He was making tackles. He was, he was making moves that he'd never made before. 
He's outworking everybody. He starts moving up the ranks until he moves from the practice squad to the second string. And then he gets in the game. They tried with law. You must, you must, you must. Why aren't you? Why aren't you? Why aren't you? It didn't work. Finally, they said, look, we're going to bring you back and we're going to show you love that you don't deserve. And his heart was so stirred because of this gesture, because of this kindness that he received. They began to work for that team in a profound way. Jay Gresham Machen, who was the former Princeton professor and founder of Westminster uh, Seminary, said it so beautifully. He said, what good does it do to tell me the type of religion in the Bible is a very fine type of religion? And the thing for me to do is just start practicing it now. He said, I will tell you, my friend, it does not the tiniest little bit of good. What I need, first of all, is not exhortation, but a gospel. Not directions for saving myself, but knowledge of how God has saved me. Have you any good news? That is the question that I ask of you. I know your exhortations will not help me, but if anything has been done to save me, will you not tell me the facts? Let me tell you the facts this morning as I conclude. Jesus died so that you could be made fully alive. Not so that you could work your way via a ladder. Not so you could earn God's approval. Jesus died the death that you deserve, the death that I deserve, so that we could have life to the fullest. Jesus was rejected by God the Father so that we could be accepted by this holy and perfect God, regardless of what we've done in the past. The gospel is good news. There's a reason that the angels who announced Jesus' birth said, Behold, I bring you glad tidings. Good news. And it wasn't glad tidings if you try really hard, you can save yourself. It was glad tidings that there is in front of you a baby who will grow up to be the man who delivers the world from the condemnation and reign of sin. If you failed this morning, I have very good news for you. If you failed this morning as I have, I have good news for you. Because of what Jesus has done, his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension, his intercession for us even now, because of Jesus, if you are in Christ, you are loved, you are accepted, you are received, you are forgiven by faith alone in Christ alone. That gives us joy in the struggle. That gives us a longing to obey and to love. And that gives us a reason even to sing in the victory. Let's pray.